produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. On this edition of the program, we look at the landmark decision that labels artificial intelligence as an inventor. This is the first time someone has filed a patent application explicitly stating that the traditionally inventive part of the invention was made by an AI without a human inventor. We examine some of the ethical dilemmas associated with AI. The challenge with values or morality, they're different for different humans. They're different for different nations, religions, genders. So that is still unsolved. And we learn what businesses are doing now to make the most of AI. A video or music streaming service, it's got suggestions based on the past things you've watched. That's an algorithm at play in the background. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. In July this year, an Australian federal court made a landmark decision when it handed down a ruling that artificial intelligence or AI systems can legally be recognised as an inventor in patent applications. While this may not sound like a big deal, it's actually a groundbreaking precedent as it challenges a fundamental assumption in the law that only human beings can be inventors. Ryan Abbott is an attorney and author of the book The Reasonable Robot, Artificial Intelligence and the Law. He says he wanted to advocate for artificial inventorship after realising the law's double standards in assessing behaviour by an AI compared to behaviour by a human being. Ryan Abbott joined me from his office in the UK. Ryan Abbott, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So can you explain in simple terms what this landmark decision by the Australian court actually means? Sure. Well, this is the first time someone has filed a patent application explicitly stating that the traditionally inventive part of the invention was made by an AI without a traditional human inventor. We filed these applications in 17 jurisdictions. In July of this year, Mm -hmm. we had a patent granted for the first time in South Africa, and this was followed three days later by an extensive reasoned decision by a federal court in Australia holding that this sort of invention should receive a patent. By contrast, a patent has so far been denied to us in the US, the UK, and Europe. Essentially, this case deals with what happens as AI gets more advanced, as it does more in R&D. And so at stake in this case is really the future of innovation, the use of AI and R&D, and whether or not our intellectual property system is going to accommodate that sort of thing. Okay, so as I understand it, traditionally human beings were the ones that were considered to be inventors. But now with this decision, AI, artificial intelligence, can now be an inventor. How significant do you think this decision is? And is this, I mean, it's very unorthodox, isn't it? It is unorthodox. Historically, if you had a patentable invention, there was a person you could identify who was directly responsible for that invention. Although there have been cases looking at whether a corporation could be an inventor for purposes of patent law, this would leave people out of receiving acknowledgement and sometimes economic benefits. Mm. Uh, But this case is different because in our case, you had an AI automating what it is that traditionally makes a person an inventor. 
And while listing the AI as the inventor was part of the case, the bigger picture issue was whether or not this sort of activity is the sort of thing that our intellectual property system is going to accommodate. Mm -hmm. In the absence of a traditional human inventor, there were concerns that you couldn't get a patent on this sort of activity at all, mm. which would be really problematic if, for example, Pfizer uses a very sophisticated AI to find a new antibody to treat COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, if they need a patent to then commercialize that drug, it says to them, you can't use AI and R&D the way that might be most efficient. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to put people in this process, at least if you care about patents. In 2019, Siemens disclosed a case study, and they had an AI that generated a new car suspension design. Essentially, they said they had an AI that optimized industrial designs. You know, they gave it publicly available information. They told it what they wanted the car suspension to do, and it spit out this new design that was obviously valuable and interesting to them, but none of them felt they had exhibited any inventive skill in creating that thing. And that isn't just vanity on their part. In the U.S., it can be a criminal offense to deliberately and inaccurately list yourself as an inventor. And having the wrong inventor can invalidate a patent or render it unenforceable. So Siemens has subsequently said they've had this happen a number of times, that they have AI being used for industrial design, and you can't get protection for it. And that's really the commercial problem that this case is looking to solve. So this case was really very significant for Australia, I think, both as a matter of industrial policy and as a matter of intellectual property law, putting the flag down and saying as a jurisdiction that these sorts of uses of AI are going to be protected and encouraged, and it establishes Australia as really a very forward-thinking jurisdiction in terms of how it is working to encourage AI development. If we extrapolate on this decision, AI as inventor, where does the ethical responsibilities lie if something goes wrong with the invention? Well, this is really not very different at all from the context in which inventions are normally made. A as a general matter, most patents are not owned by human inventors. Most patents are owned by corporations and artificial persons that employ inventors. Mm, okay. Now, use of an invention is a separate question. There are some very interesting issues associated with that, with AI stepping into the shoes of people and doing things that only people used to do. Mm. And I have a book out on this recently, The Reasonable Robot, Artificial Intelligence and the Law. So it may be in a few years you have a choice when you call an Uber of whether you want a self-driving Uber or a person driving an Uber. But it, it's an odd sort of system that if a person causes an accident, they are liable under a negligence regime, which is a lower standard of liability than if a self-driving Uber causes an injury where it is held to a strict liability standard. And it results in an unfair playing field, essentially, for two different possible drivers, which are both doing the same thing but are held to different liability standards. Mm -hmm. And that's probably not a good system if what we want is a system that encourages the safer option. Mm. In that case, holding them both to the same standard encourages Uber and you to use whichever option ends up performing better. Hmm. And I, I would imagine I'm thinking about AI as inventor. It's a bit like that Shakespearean quote, nothing is neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. AI is AI. It doesn't have good nor bad to it. It's more the human interpretation of it. 
Um, AI raises a number of very interesting questions like this. You know, in the intellectual property space, for example, we can think of AI creating new copyrightable sorts of works, like mm -hmm. new artistic works like paintings, or you can go and play with Google's Deep Dream online and make photographs that, you know, take a photograph and you play with it a bit and it makes it essentially unrecognizable through AI. And, and people are paying a lot of money for this art. There's no question really that functionally AI can do the sort of thing that if a person did it, you would get a copyrightable work. The bar for that for people though is exceptionally low. I can pull my phone out and just take a picture of what I'm looking at and that creates a copyrightable work. You know, there's another view of this, which is that copyright requires human creativity and originality. And even if a machine can do exactly the same thing a person can, uh, it doesn't really count because machines don't have semantic understanding of what they're doing and they essentially can't think. I think that that is sort of a misguided approach in the legal sphere, you know, very much for the reasons that Alan Turing identified a long time ago when he was asking whether or not machines think. Mm -hmm. Because what the law generally wants is to promote certain sorts of social outcomes. For example, with tort law, promoting safety, uh, with tax law, promoting revenue and distribution of resources, with IP law to promote the creation of new socially valuable inventive and artistic sorts of works. And so to me, whether a machine knows what it's doing when it makes this new painting or whether when it makes an invention is irrelevant if a machine is generating the sort of thing that we want and where there's a market failure in generating it. You know, and indeed, it's hard to say how much people entirely understand what they're doing or how different it is what's going on in someone's mind, what's going on in a monkey's mind, or what's going in a machine's black box. Personally, I think whether machines have semantic understanding or not, and they certainly don't in the way that a person does, it's really not relevant to how we regulate them. So this decision, where do you see this going into the future? What will it lead to? Well, the decision is being appealed in Australia, so we'll see what happens there. Mm. And similar decisions are being appealed in the US, the UK, and Europe. But really, public discourse around this issue has evolved very significantly since we filed these cases in 2018, since we announced them in 2019, and over the past year. And really, you know, in the preceding years before that, as I was researching this area, I would speak about it and companies would sometimes think that it was vaguely theoretically interesting and a mere five years later were coming to me for advice about what to do about this and whether it was going to be an issue for their business models because you know, we're witnessing some dramatic advances in both the sophistication of AI and the implementation of AI. And I think that more jurisdictions are coming around to Australia's point of view and recognizing that this is an important sort of thing to protect. Uh, India has just done a parliamentary consultation recommending that the law be changed to protect this. The president of South Korea recently announced that AI-generated inventions should be protected. And so I think that in the coming years, more jurisdictions are going to, to go the way of Australia. And that is going to be important because we have a, a global business system and a global intellectual property system. And it is important that inventions made in one jurisdiction are protected in others. Ryan Abbott, thank you for joining the program. Thanks so much for having me.
So we know that artificial intelligence is here to stay. And in a lot of ways, it plays a very helpful role in various areas of business and society. But what about the ethical questions associated with AI and the unintended consequences? To discuss this in more detail, I spoke recently to Dr. Katrina Wallace, CEO of the Ethical AI Advisory Group. Dr. Katrina Wallace, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. The decision by an Australian court that deems AI as an inventor is a big shift. What's the ethics question at play here? Well, I not sure there is an ethics question at play, which is mm-hmm. my challenge back to us in thinking about this. Mm. So, look, it, it may be an ethical question with regard to as we go forward into this period of transhumanism that we're going into, mm. whether machines and robots have have rights. And mm. this shows that perhaps they do. There are different camps. One says that AI is a revelation and one that is of the view that AI will be or can be a threat to humanity. But is it really that black and white? Well, it's both. So if we Mm -hmm. think about what artificial intelligence is now and if we simply define it as software that can mimic human intelligence, there's a a brilliant Australian based in the UK, uh, Professor Toby Ord, who's just written a book called Precipice. And he maps out the existential risks that are going to affect humanity or destroy life as we know it by the end of the century, such as climate change, pandemics, nuclear war, asteroids hitting the earth, are all maybe, you know, one in a thousand or to one in a hundred thousand chance of it happening. He puts artificial intelligence at a one in ten chance of it being a true existential risk. So we see both sides of it. One, it will be the most transformative power source that humanity has experienced, Mm. plus the greatest risk. It's interesting when you say things like, potentially kill all the humans, uh, that, that obviously, you know, there are challenges for society in terms of AI and ethics. So w- what do you think are the largest challenges that need to be addressed? Yeah, well, at the moment, the challenges really come from a, a lack of regulation of algorithmic decision making. Mm-hmm. And so the harms that are being caused at the moment are largely around matters of justice and bias. Mm. Machines are discriminating because they have been trained on historical data and in that historical data is already society's ills reflected. So whether it's the absence of women in financial Mm -hmm. data or the absence of Indigenous people in any data sets, uh, these things are problematic because they're the data sets that are training the algorithms. But as we go forward and we see AI in defence and warfare, AI in healthcare, Mm. many benefits as they'll bring also comes with the darker side and the more more risky side. I I do recall, I don't know the exact details, but um, with that inbuilt bias, I think there were some famous cases in the United States around the prison system and the criminal justice system. It's very difficult to kind of scrub that data clean. Do you see that that it can actually happen in reality? Yes, I do. There, there are now a whole bunch of tools and techniques under the, the guise of responsible or ethical AI that are available for companies to start to use AI responsibly. Do you think that AI should be programmed with human morality or is, does that just cause even more problems because morality can be kind of subjective? Yeah, so good question. 
There are eight core principles of doing ethical AI. Mm -hmm. The top two principles there are that AI must be developed with human society and environments in mind. And then AI must be developed with human-centred values is the word rather than morality. Now, the the challenge with that is even when we look at values or morality, Mm. they're different for different humans. They're different for different nations, religions, genders. Uh, So that that is still unsolved in the responsible AI community. How would you tackle that? I mean, would that require some sort of almost like an AI UN or something like that to figure out the parameters? Right. So possibly the World Economic Forum has done some really excellent work and made a whole bunch of free tools available to to anyone wanting to approach this. Mm -hmm. My view is actually the answer to this is through having diversity at the table for designing the AI. Mm -hmm. Now, at the moment, nine in 10 jobs in the artificial intelligence sector globally are held by males. Mm -hmm. And so already we're seeing challenges. That's just in gender. Then there'll be all sorts of other absence of other minority groups. And so unless we change that, then it's a really slippery slope. We call it unintended harms. Mm-hmm. So so organisations will typically do a good job in, okay, here are the harms we know will happen, we'll try and mitigate them. Mm-hmm. It's the unintended harms that AI has great power to do and we want to try and avoid those. Mm. We spoke about AI as a revelation and also as a threat. At what point do you think the potential challenges or problems around AI would outweigh the benefits? Yeah, well, well, AI is very invasive in our lives at the moment, and more so than we really know. So mm. I'm writing a book called Survive AI, which maps out the taxonomy of harm that AI can potentially create, mm-hmm. and then what we what we do about it. And in, and in doing that, we, we mapped out a couple of personas. On an average day, a middle-aged woman would interact with AI currently about 28 times. Mm -hmm. And then we mapped out a teenager and the teenagers, Mm -hmm. it's over 100 times that a teenager would actually interact with AI during a given day. Mm. And Gartner predicts within the next three years that 80% of all technology that we use will have AI as a foundational component. So I think the tipping point is probably maybe five years away. And that stage, we come to that tipping point around harms that are being caused outweighing the good. Mm-hmm. And currently we can see with, with Facebook, uh, every week Facebook has some new challenge about how its algorithms are influencing elections, perpetuating eating disorders in teenage girls. So it's we're already getting momentum and we're already starting to see senates and governments trying to come into the mix to to see whether regulation will in fact delay that tipping point or or tip us back in in towards AI really being a good and positive tool for humanity rather than negative. Dr. Katrina Wallace, thanks for joining the program. Such a pleasure. There's no doubt that businesses harness the benefits of AI to provide a range of streamlined services. But to really understand the intersection between AI and business, I caught up with KPMG Futures partner in charge, James Mabbott. James Mabbott, welcome to the program. 
Hi, Whitney. Pleasure to be here. So, James, let's start at the very start. What actually is artificial intelligence? That's a good question, Whitney, because I think we often talk about artificial intelligence and it's a bit of a catch-all cry that has so many different meanings to so many different people. At one end, it invokes visions of science fiction movies. At the other end of things, you've got the real world where we all live and play and where what we're actually talking about is a range of different um, activities undertaken by a system, things like natural language generation or optimization, mm-hmm. or vision and image recognition or natural language understanding. These are the sorts of things that we mean when we talk about AI in a real world application, not so much the uh, science fiction that comes to mind when so many of us hear that term. That's a, that's a shame, James, because I'm a big fan of science fiction. But there's been so much confusion about how AI is being used. How is it actually being applied in business today? Yeah, there's a range of different ways. And I think what a lot of people don't realise is that a lot of our interactions are actually with AI in our day-to-day lives. Open up a map application on your phone. Um, Sitting behind that will be an algorithm that will be working out your optimal route. Or if you use your camera and take a photo of someone and it says to you, is this a photo of James Mabbitt or Whitney Fitzsimmons? Again, that's AI in action open up Netflix or listen to Spotify or some other video or music streaming service and it's got suggestions there in terms of the things that you might like or enjoy based on the past things you've watched. Again, that's an algorithm at play in the background. The landmark decision by the Australian Federal Court to rule that AI can be viewed as inventor How much of a a huge deal, I guess, for business is that? How do you see that sort of playing out in the business landscape? Well, I think it's an interesting question, Whitney, because as I understand it, I think that decision has come under some pressure and challenge. Mm. I think it's under appeal at the moment. That's what Ryan mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So it's under appeal. But I think, you know, if you extend that and say, okay, the final decision might be that AI can take the role of an inventor, to my mind, it's not similar to where you have an employment contract in an organisation that says I as an employee and the things I create are the IP or the property of the company that I work for, where it might get a little bit more blurry and um, we might want to seek some clarification because this is where actually most organisations will engage with and use AI will be on cloud-based platforms that might be provided by other organisations to deliver services to them. And if in those instances, through the interaction with those AI services, we're somehow creating new IP or new products and services that that technology platform then benefits from, what then does that mean for us as an organisation and our role and interaction in training and developing that algorithm or those services to be better? That's the type of question we might need to lean into in the future. Of course, there's been a lot of talk about AI and automation replacing jobs. To what extent do you think that that is a reality? Yeah, again, it's another one of those really interesting forwards-looking questions and areas of speculation and supposition that we hear so much about. And you could probably find right now a number of reports that suggest X percentage of all jobs to be automated and through to other reports that say, well, actually, maybe that won't happen at all. I think if you look at what we've seen to date, the application of AI in businesses has certainly helped to 
automate and make easier certain routine tasks or elements of roles, but it hasn't led to wholesale loss or transformation of roles. And the other outcome here too that we've seen is the creation and invention of new roles within organisations such as data scientists or AI architects, cloud engineers, all of these things wouldn't be possible without the application and use of these technologies as well. So I think it's not very clear cut at the moment, Whitney, in terms of what the impact to jobs will be, other than that aspects of jobs or certain tasks in them may well be automated. Mm. But in doing so, we may find we create other opportunities for people within organisations to contribute value. Another aspect that AI also uh, challenges is the idea of trust. You know, AI is behind a lot of that technology around deep fakes and, and those sorts of things. How do you see that playing out in the future? Will there be some sort of guideline, framework, laws, something to govern that? Yeah, it's an area of research we as a firm have been involved in, along with the University of Queensland, is looking at the impact of emerging technologies on trust. And most people aren't aware of when and where they're currently using AI and don't have a great understanding of what it is. So there's a knowledge gap in that sense. Mm -hmm. And what you find is when there's a knowledge gap, there's a propensity to call for and ask for stronger regulation and controls. The other piece that people have a pretty strong opinion on too is that the closer the use and the application of AI technologies comes to them as a person or individual, i.e. if it was to be used in terms of assessing someone's performance on the job or monitoring our participation in the work environment, people are really uneasy with those sorts of applications as well and less likely to trust not just the use of the technology, but the organisation that would seek to use that technology in that way. James Mabbott, thanks for joining the program. No problem, Whitney. It's been a pleasure. All right, well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the program. To learn more about Ryan Abbott's book, The Reasonable Robot, check out the show notes. Until next time, thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 